The Golden Valley's 95.3 Triple M. Well, I've had quite the run talking to the who's who of Australian music. I've spoken with Ella Hooper. I've spoken to Phil from Grinspoon, Cram. I've spoken to Powderfinger. I've spoken to Diesel. But these are the musicians that you see on the front side of the CD cover. What about the people behind the scenes? What about the, uh, the, the people that make the song transfer from the artist's head onto vinyl or tape or digital, whatever you want to call it? I've had the esteemed pleasure of knowing my next guest for many, many years. I consider him a good friend, his family, uh, and of course, uh, I've met him and spoken to him about his work uh, over the uh, over the many years. And the work includes the who's who uh, of the Australian and international music scene, having worked extensively with In Excess, Cold Chisel, Jimmy Barnes, ACDC, Australian Crawl, Hoodoo Gurus, and Noiseworks. These are the songs that we play for you on Triple M all around the country every day. Now, I've just reeled off probably 10 out of the 15 albums that we have on high rotation here. And uh, he just said, he made a very good point to me just before we went live on air. He said, uh, you know, if it wasn't for me, a lot of you radio guys wouldn't have a job. And isn't that the truth? I'm talking, of course, about Mark Opitz, one of the country's most esteemed producers and has had a very, very interesting career over the last 35 years, having started uh, with the ABC and EMI and then, of course, moving to the Alberts House of Production, which is a whole nother story. And, of course, you'll know Alberts uh, from the very famous ACDC days as well, Rose Tattoo and the Angels, just to name a few. Mark joins me on the phone now for a chat. Mark Opitz, I hope I've introduced you properly. Billy, you're a great mate and you've done a, a great service to me and you've pumped my tyres right up. Oh, well, thank you, Mark, but I don't think I really had to do that because uh, your work speaks for itself. Um, as I said, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I'm very lucky to be able to call you a friend and someone that I've admired for many years. And Mark, I want to I want to go back to the start. Now, obviously, uh, it's a it's a it's a huge story. Um, but I'll try I'll try and get this right. You started out at the ABC um, uh, on the camera side of things. Uh, you weren't really involved with music at ABC, is that right? Yeah, well, I, I I came to be involved with music, but like when I was a kid at high school, I I had I had you know I had a dream, uh, two dreams in fact, you know, and and you follow your dream, and my 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 dreams were either to be the best music, uh, to, to be the best movie director in the country or to be the best uh, music producer in the country. So naturally, I started off trying to be the best movie director, and that's why I was in the ABC. And after a while with the ABC, things, uh, certain things happened where I ended up, they, they punished me for going off and doing a um, working in film department. When I say they punished me, the stu- TV studios were separate from the film department. Uh, you know, I, I applied for a job in the film department, shooting, being assistant cine cameraman on a, on a, a big TV series. And uh, when I got back to TV studios, they decided to punish me by putting me in audio, and not only audio, but the lowest to the low music audio. <laughs> and I thought, hmm, okay, I'm into that. And so basically, you know, I was working with symphony orchestras right through to rock bands on, you know, GTK, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all that sort of and uh, of course, of course, from from there, uh, the Vander and Young story started. Now, Vander and Young, of course, uh, one of the uh, most well-known uh, music producers. Uh, of course, working with ACDC, um, Easy Beats, etc. Um, how did that meeting come about, Mark? Did did they approach you, or was it just a, a lucky uh, a chance meeting? 
Well, I, I, I happened to get sacked from EMI for something that I didn't do, and, uh, and, uh, uh, which was really bizarre. And I, I thought, you know, that's it, my career's over. But lucky for me, one of my great mates was a guy called Wayne DeGrucci who managed John Paul Young. And I'd met Bander and Young before, but briefly when I'd done a little bit of mastering work at EMI for them. And um, anyway, um, George Young rang me up and said, listen, mate, you know, come in for an interview. We wouldn't mind having a chat to you because Wayne DeGrucci said, you've got to grab this guy. And, uh, and, and so I had a two-hour meeting with, with George and Harry, and, um, and they said, look, mate, we're looking for an apprentice. You know, we got, we're, we're so overloaded. You know, you seem to fit the bill. Why don't you think about it for two days and then give us a call back and tell me if you're, tell us if you're interested. Now, Billy, you can imagine. I got home. I sat by that phone for 48 hours exactly. <laughs> picked up the phone. I said, yeah, I'm in. And, uh, and that's how it started. And, wow. and so Monday, 9 o'clock, rocked up, you know, to, uh, nervous as all get out. And... Um, and George says, yeah, Mac, you know, we recorded this rock band last week. You know, we want you to do a mix of it. You know, it's all, uh, you know, go down to the studio. You'll find the tape on the machine and have, have a go. And, uh, and I said, sure, okay. Didn't ask who it was. And uh, it turned out to be uh, Bad Boy for Love Rose Tattoo. Wow. So that was my first gig, you know. And then from then on, it was like, it was basically Band of Young and me locked away for a few years in the studio. And I just worked on everything with them, like from ACDC, John Paul Young, Crash in the pan, and then one day George said to me, "Look, we're going, we've got this band that hasn't worked for us. We've done a single. The album didn't work. The single didn't sell. We're going to drop them, or you can take them on as their producer." And that band was called the Angels, and the Elf, and I took them on. And to cut a long story short, look for a sound that I that I termed sophisto punk. I didn't know what it was, but I, I knew it when I heard it. And one day they played me a certain song uh, called "I Ain't the One." Didn't have lyrics. And I said, yep, that's our sound. And we transposed that sound to pretty much every other song and basically face-to-face went five times platinum and the rest of the team. Well, Mark, it didn't take very long for you to get a name in the industry. Uh, literally, within a couple of years, you're working with Cold Chisel. Uh, you're working with uh, arguably one of the greatest songwriters in Australia, Don Walker. Uh, I don't think there's many people that would argue with that. Uh, can you tell us a bit about your, your first days working with Cole Chisel in the studio? Did you, did you have a feeling that these guys were going to be as great as they were, and of course Jimmy, uh, as, a, as a performer? Well, it was very interesting the way I got to work with Chisel because at, at that stage I was um, working with uh, Alberts, and I'd just finished, I think, uh, the No Exit album or... Power Age with ACDC or something like that. And, um, and Chisel had done two albums already, but they'd gone nowhere. And um, but so they thought, oh, we'll go to Albert's and, and, you know, try and get the Albert sound. And so they didn't get to use George and Harry in my studio, and they didn't even get to use our number two studio, but we, we set them up in this uh, little studio downstairs and, and, and they were working on Breakfast at Sweethouse at the time. And um, I remember going down there to get a bit of equipment out and I walked into the vocal booth where Jimmy was singing and, and the look on his face was just not panic but just frustration and uh, and I'd already known that these guys were like to me one of the really good live bands but they just hadn't been able to translate to record and uh, the head of A&R for Warner Brothers rang me up one day and said listen I had Chisel a couple of weeks in the studio would you be interested in working with them and I said yeah sure love to and, um, and so you know, that's basically where it started. And I, and I went through all their material and, and you know, and I 
said, just play me every song, every song you got in the studio. And while it was playing them, I was recording them. Uh, after working with Cold Chisel, I mean, you, you then went on to work with In Excess, uh, which, which our Triple M Club members have voted to be the greatest band of all time. You were with In Excess uh, from the very early days, uh, right through their, their real, I guess you could almost say the pinnacle of their career, which was that early 90s time when they played uh, Wembley in 91, if I'm not mistaken. You had a hand in producing that as well. Oh, yeah. yeah, I did all that. Yep. And when you started working with them, I saw an interview that you did on the recording studio, which we'll, which we'll talk about as well. Um, when you were working on Shabu Shabar, you, you, you said that you wanted to shake things up. You wanted to shake the apple cart. Um, you didn't like the fact that they were comfortable with certain things in terms of where you might put the guitars or the drums or the keyboards or whatever it is. So you, you said that you wanted to move everything around and, and really take them out of their comfort zone to get the best out of them. Can you explain that a little bit more uh, about what? Well, you yeah, mean? sure. That, that that's easy. You know, even going back a little further, when I was made head of A and R Warner Brothers, the, the first band I tried to sign was In Excess. But you know, I got to see them and I went to a gig. But Chris Murphy said, "Oh shit, you're two days too late. You've signed with Deluxe." So I was in. I was in very early when they when they were starting off. And so and and then it wasn't till you know they'd got out of their Deluxe contract that. Um, Chris Murphy sent me over uh, three songs. Sent me over Johnson's Aeroplane, Black and White, and a song called The One Thing. And he said, pick a song and, uh, at, at, that you think is going to be a single. And so he, he gave me, uh, and I'm getting to the, what you're talking about, don't worry. He get, so, so I went through all the material, and I thought, yeah, Black and White, that's good, that's really good. Uh, Johnson's Aeroplane, which ended up on the swing, that's great, that's great. And then, uh, but the one thing was the thing that appealed to me, but the thing... I didn't like was the arrangement, and, and a lot of it was because in those days in excess were doing very jerky sort of arrangements. So it had some sort of music, and all of a sudden something had come out of you know nowhere in the song, you know, like a little bridge or, or uh, you know or something like that that would sort of drop the sea anchor out. In other, in other words, stop the feel. So I, 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 I so I had the demo, and on, on my tape recorder I just. Put the put the demo on, and then I just edited out all the bits that I thought were disruptive to the song. Then put the song back together again, took it over them, and played it to them. I said, "This is the way I want to do it." They said, "Yeah, for sure, let's go." And off we went. And so I did that song, the one thing, and um, and obviously that, that you know that was probably their first real commercial hit. I mean, they, they had just keep walking and and stuff like that, but that, that hadn't really gone in top five. But where it's what we got was the one thing we got to the top five. But in the meantime, they wanted to use that song uh, to attract a big-name American producer or English producer. You know, so I thought, that's the last song I'm doing. I'm fine with that. And they went around you know, America, you know, and you know, Kirk, Andrew, and Michael went all over Europe and, and America looking for a producer. And all the big-name producers, you know, they played the one thing to them. And they, all the big-name producers said to them, what the hell are you talking to us for? Why aren't you using that guy? You know, it, you know, we can't do that stuff. I mean, how did we do that? You know, so they came back, not with their tails between their legs, but they came back and said, listen, you know, everyone we talked to said we're crazy not using you, so will you do the record? And I said, sure. And as you say, I wanted to shake things up a little bit in, 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 and get them out of that, um, and make them unique. I wanted to make the fusion work, you know, not just rely on... on, on on, on one style, which they were doing. And at that stage, Michael was semi-rapping songs, if you remember. Mm. He'd be da-da-da-da, da-da, and he wasn't singing. And so, um, so 
So that was my main thing was to, to, to go through their material and, and find a way to make it make it work. And I think I taught him to have a studio worked on a little known song that doesn't get played often called Jan Song. But that's the song where he learned to sing because he was nervous about it. And I said, look, don't worry about it. Just go and do five takes of what you got and go home. And he went, went and he did five takes of what he had, went home. Then I spent all night, maybe six hours that night till about five in the morning, you know, piecing together the best, best bits because he'd changed his melody all the time. And still I got a consistent melody. Played it to him the next you know, day when he came in and he said, bullshit, is that me? And I said, that's you, buddy. And that's when, and that's when I think he really gained that confidence. Similar to with Don't Change, you know, that was a different kind of song when I got hold of it, but I knew what I wanted to do. And, and my main focus for, for the band and for Michael was I, I, I brought in a song by Blondie called Union City Blue that you might be familiar with. Mm. And, um, and, and, and what Union City Blue does, it has a very frenetic beat, but the melody room floats over the top and that's and so I use that as the inspiration about how we look at a song like Don't Change and, and so I used it for that to get Michael to sing over the top of a, of a pulsating beat rather than follow the beat energy. Now uh, there's so many stories that I'm sure you could share about your time with excess, Mark, maybe not some that we can share uh, for this interview uh, on air. But, That's true. But we know that uh, obviously the band um, uh, reached uh, reached a big pinnacle of their success in about '91 um, when they did that Wembley uh, sold out show, uh, which I mentioned to you. And then we know that shortly after that, Michael uh, had an accident um, in Copenhagen, I believe it was. Um, right. And after that, uh, he went. They the band went on to record Full Moon, Dirty Hearts over in Capri. Actually- yeah, 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 sort of. Now, we did one album before that. We did uh, Welcome to Every Oh, sorry, Welcome to Every Are. Yes. Had that accident happened then or was that after? After. after. And Welcome to Every Are, just to, just, to, just to touch on Welcome. To me, that was that, that, that's the band's favourite album they've ever done. That's my favourite album I've ever done. I mean, I've got a lot of different favourite records here, favourite live recording, you know, favourite video, all that that I've worked on, all that. Mm. My favourite studio recording is definitely Welcome to Every Are. Uh, because again, you know, I, I'd seen what happened with Kick. They didn't like Kick. It was a huge success, but they didn't like the popiness of it. And they knew, and they were in competition with U2, and U2 were sort of diverging away. And they knew that if they didn't straighten up, you know, it, it, or, or get into a, 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 a discover new stuff, you know, things you know, wouldn't work. And they did X after that, and that sort of was a copy of uh, of, of Kick. And it's, you know, and it sort of was had some good tracks on there. I had a great track, Suicide Blonde, for example. And yeah, but it didn't have that. It wasn't a record that you could hold in your hand and say, "This is the record." Mm. This is the collection of songs. So I took the attitude of taking them back to Shabu Shabar, we welcome to everyone, and 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 approached it in that very way, and recorded in my studio in Sydney called Rhinoceros that I owned in excess of two other parts. Mm. And then after that, you know, it, it, unfortunately, they didn't tour. And um, which was such a bummer because the album went, it was their first number one album in Europe, in England, in France, in Germany, all that sort of place. But because they didn't tour it, you know, we didn't get the, the, the traction it really needed. And, mm. and to this day, it, to me, I think if they would have toured that, interspersed it with songs from Kick, you know, and, and all the other albums, would have been a, the album would have gone through the roof. But that wasn't to be the case, and so and then so we got together a couple of years later in on the Isle of Capri, which I lived on for a few years directly after that, mm. uh, with, with 
with your friends and my friends, my children, mm. and um, and uh, and uh, and we set to work there. But at that stage, Michael was certainly suffering um, from lack of smell, uh, lack of taste. Uh, not all completely gone, but most of it. Uh, he was very fractious with with, with uh, the rest of the band. You know, there were you know like physical, almost physical altercations going on at times with certain members. And there was a lot of divisiveness going on. And Michael and I shared our, our own sort of um, our own little our own house. And you know, and every night I could hear Michael trash in his bedroom. And he'd come and see me and say, "That's it. I'm out of here. I'm not going to hang with these guys any longer." And I said, "Mate, just hang on." And, you know, so that's where that psychologist bit comes in. You talked about earlier on. Mm. But you know, bless his cotton socks. You know, he, 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 you know, I've only met one other person like him in the music business, and that's Vaughn Scott. And they're very similar in character. And, um, but, you know, we got through it. You know, it, it, it wasn't a great time in the sense that it was also the last record on the, um, the, the recording track that I, uh, contract with the Atlantic at the time. So it was a bit of, you know, well, when Michael said to me that I was building a studio in, Car- in Capri and he said, well, let's go. I said, yeah, you bet we'll go. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, it, 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 so we went there basically to make an out-of-contract record. And you know, and the and the album we made at, at the time was, you know, I usually do all the mixing, put the running orders together, and all that sort of stuff. Nirvana hit big, and so a couple of members in the band sort of screwed up my running order, which was you know had a beautiful running order. Every song ran into each other, and you know it was, it was similar to the way Shabu worked and, 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 and Welcome worked, and, uh, and so it, it sort of you know got lost in the plot a little bit in, in, um, in the politics of. Uh, what was going on at the time, but yeah, but yeah, no, no, that was you're very correct. You know, in the sense that Michael was undergoing some huge pressure, mental pressure at that time. He doesn't like what? Sorry, being Michael Hutchins. Oh like, wow! What and what are you talking about? He says, "Well, he said, I, he said, it's not that I don't like being Michael Hutchins. I just don't like being Michael Hutchins of in excess because every time we have to tour, it means I have to go to the Michael Hutchins shop." and put on the Michael Hutchins charisma coat. And there he is, exact words. Wow. I have to put on that charisma coat and then go out and be the Michael Hutchins that everyone expects. Mate, I'd much rather be you know, having scrambled eggs with Helena in the morning and then going through old antiquarian bookshops in the afternoon in the Paris summer sun touring the wow. And, that, and, it, and this, is, this is quite late in the piece, of course. And so that thought has never left but it gives you some indication of what a, a, a human being he was, and um, and that that uh, uh, you know that, that the fluff and bluster that you see was it, it was sure that was that was him. But you got to remember when we were doing their greatest show they ever did, the Christmas, we had the the brains to film and record and spend a million dollars on, you know, July '91, as in uh, as you previously mentioned, Wembley Stadium. Mm. You know, it, uh, Michael couldn't see past the first three rows. Because not everyone knew that he needed glasses, and that's what used to get him through. Just the fact that he really couldn't see all those people out. All he could see was blur, uh, and so he'd be able to get up there and uh, and, uh, and you know and perform to everyone. And, uh, was the was uh, the band happy with their performance? Oh man, happy! It's it's it's, it's their favourite performance ever. Mm, mm. Ever. You know, they 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 you know to a man they will say that's it and. Chris Murphy had the brains to spend the entire fee on on the show. You know, like you know, no one got any money after that show. It all went on, 
you know, uh, you know David Mallet directing, you know, helicopters, you know, massive, um, you know, 13 or 14 film cameras and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it was, you know, uh, you know, that video, Live Baby Live, DVD I'm talking about, is, is if anyone hasn't seen that, you know, and wants to get what inaccessible I could be at peak height. Now... I've just mentioned some of the, the biggest artists that we that, that we play uh, here on Triple M, which is a direct result of your work. But there must be some work out there, Mark, an album um, that you wish you'd been a part of. Can you answer that question? That's a hard one, mate. Mm. It's my job. A real hard one. Well, I can answer it, actually. Um, in, uh, in, what is it, 1986 or 85, I got this telex, as they were in those days, as opposed to email from Geffen Records, and they asked me, they said, we've got a band, it's a new band, and we and listening to your, and a band loves the work that you did with uh, the Angels, Rose Tattoo, ACDC, all that sort of stuff, and they want you to produce a band. Can you come and do it? And, 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 and it's, it's made up of two uh, bands from LA that have now, you know, split and formed into one band, and and they've made a mixture of, of their names to, na- to, 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 to name the, the band. And, and I, I listened to the demos and thought, oh, these are really good. And then Geffen kept on sending me all this material on them, saying, these guys are the real deal. They've just burnt their manager's house down. You know, oh, they've, they've just burnt the studio down. Oh, now they've been arrested for uh, so, you know, doing this. And I'm thinking, well, hang on. I'm supposed to go in and do a, a, either a Hoodoo Gurus record or a Noiseworks record. I can't remember the one of their first albums. Uh, uh, well, Blow Your Cool, not the Hoodoo Gurus first album, but third or fourth. Uh, or the Noiseworks first album. I can't actually remember which one it was. And, uh, and so, you know, and so, you know, I was a little intimidated by, well, you know, a new band doing all this, formulated from two bands. Do I really want to do Guns N' Roses first album? Oh. And uh, and so I I knocked it back. Wow, uh, was that um, Appetite for Destruction? <laughs> Appetite for Destruction, their first album. Wow, <laughs> and I knocked. But but in saying that, Bill, in saying that, they went through eleven producers until they found Mike Clink to produce it. Mike Clink didn't even end up mixing it. Thompson Barbiero, two guys mixed it out of Electric Lady Studios in New York. And Mike Clink never did another record, as far as I know. Mm. So, mind you, he made enough money from that record on royalties, probably not to ever work again with his grandchildren. Mm. But it's not so much that I, I don't really have a regret of not doing it, because if I did do it, who knows what would have happened. Maybe like all the other 11 producers, I would have been sacked after the first song. Maybe I would have done the record and it would have sold 100,000 copies. Maybe I would have done the record and it sold 100 million copies. Who knows? Um, you know, we can't go back there. Yeah, but, but what, what an amazing story. Yeah, yeah, I, and, 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 and it's not really a regret either, you know, because, you know, I, you know it's, you know, I, I, I've worked, I've been lucky enough to work with Bob Dylan, Kiss, and lots of, you know, international acts over my lifetime, and you know, Lenny Kravitz, whatever. And, uh, and but that's, that's a, it, to me, it's an interesting anecdote, and it, it, and it, 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 it taught me a lot in the, in the sense that, you know, Always take your opportunities. You just don't know what's going to happen. 
That's very true. And you have taken a lot of opportunities, Mark, that have paid off. As I keep saying, the, the proof is in the pudding uh, with all yep. the amazing work that you've been behind. Now, let's look at what's happening now, Mark. You, you, you did a book, Sophisto Punk, uh, which, uh, which you just you, you referred to that term uh, before, uh, yep. which really told your, your full story from those days in, um, at Alberts and EMI and all the different sort of uh, rebirths that you've had in the industry, whether it's behind the desk or whether it's ahead of A&R or head of music for a label. And now you're doing something very, very unique. You, you spend time in Canberra, which is, of course, my hometown, uh, at the yep. Australian National University uh, School of Music. Uh, you're doing some work there as a visiting fellow, um, as, I, as I understand. Um, actually, I, actually I, I, I started off as a visiting fellow. Right. And, and which I, was, I could not believe. You know, I was just knocked out by the fact that they even that academia had recognised me as opposed to the music industry and that the number one university in Australia, number 20 in the world, had decided that I should be a visiting fellow. But then uh, after about eight months, they said to me, we're nominating you as the H.C. Coombs Fellow, uh, which is uh, for artistic endeavour. And now that really blew my socks off because that only comes around every three years and we talk and, and it's... And when I say artistic endeavour, it includes art, painting, sculpture, everything, you know, poetry. Yeah. And so, and so, and so I'm currently, the, uh, well, you know, just finishing up being the HC Coombs Fellow, uh, which it goes for a year. But, and, you know, but what blows me away is that, you know, my peers are Sidney Nolan, you know, uh, Arthur Boyd, the artist, both of those are artists, students write the poet, you know, uh, uh, so many great musicians uh, you know, from classical to opera as well, and and and, and that's that's just blown me out. In fact, in August, uh, this on August nineteenth, I go back down there. I revert to my status back to being a visiting fellow because my term as the H.C. Coombs Fellow has ended. But it's to be awarded that fellowship is is um, the highlight of my career, no doubt about it. Wow, and of course you are getting to pass on your skills to the next generation of producers and musicians uh, musicians uh, coming through like you've been doing on the show The Recording Studio, um, which has been a very, very unique insight into uh, artists working with producers. How has that experience been for you, Mark? Uh, has, it, has it brought back um, sort of your early days? Uh, and, and what are you trying to pass on to this, this, these, these musicians coming through? Well, number one, it was an amazing honour to be, you know, asked to do the heavy lifting on that show. And when I say heavy lifting, you, you, I don't know if you've seen my episodes, but they mostly involve symphony orchestras and, 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 and things like that. So I did all basically the, you know, the symphony orchestra type ones and ones and like a hundred piece choir as well. But for me, in a word, to describe my experience on that show is uplifting, rewarding, um, you know. Uh, is what it was for me, you know, to, to have to be able to work in in that way with those sort of people, with that incredible team of people that I had at my disposal. You know, people I, I had a team that was ridiculous. You know, usually it's just me and my assistant or engineer doing stuff, and here I've got you know writers, I've got arrangers, I've got conductors, I've got orchestras, I've got musical directors, I've got all these sorts of things going on. But that's not the point. What point is that what we are doing is a show about real music and about what music should be for the 
Marco, it's you and I have been on the phone for almost uh, an hour now. It has been an honour. I've even learnt things about you that I didn't even know, and I've known you for a very long time. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm speaking, of course, with Australian Music Royalty. I know he doesn't like me saying that, but I'm going to say it. If you want to learn more about Mark's story, get yourself a copy of the book Sophisto Punk uh, about his early days uh, in the Alberts production house. He's uh, working with Vander and Young, ACDC, Colchester, In Excess, Australian Crawl Noise Works, you name it. He's worked with them all. He knows them all. Up to about 2012, and I, I tell you, I've done a lot of things. That I, I should write another book because I've done a lot of stuff since then. Oh, I know. But, the, um, but, but no, it's a good introduction. And look, Billy, you're always going to be my mate, and I really appreciate the, um, uh, you know, the questions you've asked and the way you've asked them. And, you know, it's been my absolute pleasure to be your guest as a family friend on the show. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, thank you for those very kind words, Mark. It's markopitz.com if you want to check out his work. Um, it's, it's amazing. And uh, I'll tell you what, Mark Opitz, thank you so much for your time on Triple M, and I can't wait to catch up with you. Uh, you've been very generous with your time.